I'm glad you're here. If this is your first listen, this podcast usually has the format where each episode is about a film and the guest has the profession or experience portrayed in the film, like Teen Witch with a Witch, or Vibes with a Psychic Medium, Road Games with a Truck Driver, or Rare Exports with Santa, or ALF with an Alien Lifeform. Okay, the last one I made up, but did you know ALF was an acronym? Alien Lifeform? It's important. Anyway, last season we debuted a new format which is reserved for special guests, and this episode's guest is a lovely human being. I was over the moon that they were willing and able to take the time and be so generous to share their thoughts for this episode, so I won't make you wait much longer. The last thing I will add is that our Patreon, whose sole goal is to support awesome indie artists, is a great way to keep this boat afloat, and if you join, you become eligible for a prize package every month of weird movies, freeze-dried candy, Marshall's hot sauce, stickers, pins, books, oh my gosh, we're getting freaky, so please consider your support. Now let's get right to this episode. The guest is Alex Steed, the films are those seen in his teens, and this is VHS Presents Screen Teens. Welcome to VHS Presents Screen Teens, our alt format where we celebrate the things we saw on screens in our teens. I'm your host, Dirk Marshall, and I would be remiss if I did not implore you to find us on the various social platforms at VHUS underscore podcast. There you'll find giveaways, original artwork, and much more. My guest for this episode is co-host of the You Are Good podcast, Alex Steed. Thank you for being here. Hello. I believe you're Alex Steed on Twitter and Instagram. Is that correct? Yeah, it's great. Let's just stick to the podcast. That's my whole thing. (laughs) Okay. So would you mind informing people a little bit about what You Are Good is? Sure. You Are Good is a feelings podcast about movies. So my co-host Sarah Marshall and I find that we like talking about what's going on in our heads and our hearts, but it is often difficult to get people there by being like, let's talk about what's happening in our heads and our hearts. (laughs) So we use talking about movies as a jumping off point. We're not like a film criticism podcast. We're not a film bro podcast. We are using the movie as an opportunity to explore what's going on in ourselves. Yeah, I love it. I love how it feels. I think a lot of people do. The fact that it's on the positive side of things. It's about mental health. I also started this podcast to use movies to talk about people's lives and professions. Mm. And I think that's a very fun way to look at art rather than pitting it against each other in some kind of star rating or something like that. There are people who do that well. I just am not interested in it. No, same. Yeah, (laughs) there's a lot of different ways to talk about movies. And I love that we both do a podcast with a Sarah Marshall. That's very fun. Yes, totally. We have that in common. Yeah, my wife just this weekend was doing a winery event and somebody confused her yet again for the Sarah Marshall that you podcast with. And she's like, I I get it That's very funny. Yeah. (laughs) Well, witty banter aside, it's time to just get right down into Alex Steed's Screen Teens. The format is one film seen in a theater for each year that you were a teen that played a part in forming your tastes in movies. One caveat is you get an SPP or a slumber party pick, which is a movie seen on the small screen. Not everyone adheres to these rules, but that's always the idea at the beginning. Are you ready to begin? I think I am. This required a little work. I think I'm prepared. Okay, great. 
Well, we begin in 96, and now 13-year-old Alex Steed is set adieu to being double digits in Hello 13. Fiona Apple's debut album title hits airwaves and MTV and Aphex Twin boggles minds with the Richard D. James album. The Cardigans are the first band on the moon, or at least their album title suggests it. And Underworld is crazy good with Second Toughest of Infants. And Tori Amos releases Boys for Pele. What a year for music. I've been listening to Underworld a lot lately, inexplicably. Yeah, you tweeted about it, and I put the albums back on again because the remastered ones came out with all this bonus music. And I... Yeah, that's what I've been listening to. It's great. It's so good. The theaters are filled to the gills with various delights. Independence Day, Twister, Mission Impossible, and The Rock all top the box office. However, we also get The Birdcage, Big Night, and Bound as well. Was 13-year-old Alex captivated by the Gerard Depardieu and Whoopi Goldberg vehicle bogus? Or or perhaps he was laughing hysterically while watching the truth about cats and dogs. Was he a mature 13-year-old? Or perhaps clinging to his youth by playing the newly released Nintendo 64? Only time will tell in that time is now. Alex, what did you choose? I was playing Nintendo 64 for sure, yes. although that's not what we're talking about, but I was playing The Legend of Zelda, whatever it was for that, yeah, I remember yeah. pretty extensively. So 1996, what I saw in the theater was Independence Day. Yeah. I feel like you were required to if you were of a particular age <laughs> of that time. Yeah, it was inescapable. Movies in the 90s, I feel like some of them came out and it's just like everyone had a scheduled time. Well, we all have to go see this movie so that we can... Everyone saw it. Yeah, totally. everyone did. That's exactly right. That's fantastic. Well, I chose the pillow book, so that wasn't right. My predictions are sometimes off on here. I love that that's what you chose, though. <laughs> and I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, it's Ian McGregor's best 1996 film. <laughs> <laughs> I did, is that the year that Train Spotting came out, too? Yeah. I didn't see that. I didn't see that in the theater. I think so. That was 96 or 97, I forget. I think it was 96. Yeah, I think it was 96. The book came out in 93. This is how the backwards way I got into Underworld is like new. Oh, is, yeah. Is, I've recently got back into Underworld is like recently for whatever reason, train spotting just burst into my head and I've been <laughs> obsessing with it, the text, the movie, the book, all of the things in retrospect. So yeah, my 96 at the time was Independence yeah. Day. My like 96 that has lingered is Trainspotting. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of why I wanted to set this version of the podcast in theaters because otherwise I think we would retcon our memories and be like, I watched this cool movie that came oh, out totally. here, you know, but it's like, that's not really, when we're teenagers, we were going to the theater more. And I just think it's interesting to look at those bigger films. Totally. I, I spent a lot of time talking about underground stuff. Well, great. Seasons change, feelings change, and now it's 1997, and Alex Steed is 14. Men in Black is the highest grossing film of the year, followed by Jurassic Park 2. But did that catch then 14-year-old Alex Steed's eye, or was Alex down to (laughs) fire down below with Steven Seagal? Or perhaps (laughs) since last year, his tastes had matured, and maybe he was listening to the deep lyrical content of Bleak 182's Dude Ranch. Was, (laughs) Was Alex now more into Beverly Hills Ninja or The Pest? Just maybe Janet Jackson's Velvet Rope had interest Alex to peek behind the curtain at more lurid films like Steel starring Shaquille O'Neal or Leslie Nielsen and Mr. Magoo. <laughs> was Alex Steed steered to the skater boy look by the ever-present alloy fashion catalogs or was 14-year-old Alex watching Tim Roth and Tupac in the movie Gridlocked while wearing a t-shirt over a long sleeve? Luckily, we have Alex here to paint the picture. What was your pick for 14? 
I've long thought that I saw this movie in the theater when I was 15. So this show is already revelatory and important <laughs> for me. But the first movie I saw on a date, oh, like wow. technically a date, although I like, you know, in classic, you're just starting out form. I like brought a friend. I was like, yes. girl and a friend. Yeah. Like I'll bring a backup. <laughs> I think, and who knows how much of this rationalization is itself retconned, but I believe that we were under the impression that we were seeing not 54, but because there were a lot of movies like that at the time, we thought we were seeing a nightclub movie. And technically we were when we went to go see Boogie Nights when I was 14 years old. Oh my gosh. (laughs) On my first date with a young woman. What a great date movie. I saw some really great movies in the theater around this time. I was just talking about this yesterday and because we were recording an episode on a movie I'm going to bring up soon. So I don't want to give it away, but we were just talking about how like this was the era of the mid budget Mm -hmm. independent movie. Yeah. And the reemergence, the echo boom generation, I guess, of the new auteur. Yeah. So I felt really, you know, for how screwed up it is to be a 14 year old who is seeing Boogie Nights in the theater, I also felt extremely fortunate. Yeah. Oh, I could see that. I mean, I feel the same way. The indie boom had happened, and then we were getting these indie directors making these movies but they were playing in the big theaters we didn't have to go to the art house cinemas and things it was wild the variety of things that were playing yes absolutely very grateful yeah same for you this year i chose seven years in tibet so (laughs) (laughs) i saw it i saw it on video after it came out yeah yeah i didn't make it to the theater for that one Oh no, my gosh. I was like, Mom, can you please drive me to the theater to see Seven Years Into That? I was like, Mom, I need to see that dick. Like, that's what I was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Without warning, it's 1998. Young Alex Steed is of age for a learner's permit, but was he driving his parents to the mall so he could go to Sam Goody and pick up Madonna's Ray of Light or Cat Power's Moon Picks? Or did 15-year-old Alex solve a magic eye poster while sipping on an orange Julius? <laughs> And if so, was it a dolphin or a sailboat? Because I could never see those things. <laughs> a schooner is a sailboat. Oh, right. That's true. Good point. <laughs> Did a 15-year-old Alex then stop by the theater to see Patch Adams, the water boy, and Practical Magic in that order? Or was Alex D. dripping in Echo Unlimited or more of a polo fellow as Alex watched the Truman Show, Pie, or Half-Baked? Were Alex taste buds blown away by Taco Bell debuting the Gordita? <laughs> it's a taco and a taco who designed this exhibit my apologies for the 2004 reference in 1998 alex what was your pick i mean i'm grateful that you integrated it's actually so appropriate about how much mall culture you integrated <laughs> here because this is the year i started working at the mall oh right. um when i was a kid yeah this is the year and that was like gigantically formative for a number of reasons yes and everything you said is vocabulary that <laughs> was like part of my life right. for sure and i was like a jenko's kid so i was like uh, big yeah. ass same, same. Uh, that i got from pacific sunwear in the mall that's still in the same mall in the same place which is shocking Whoa. so the longevity of Paxson, who could believe it my movie this year i didn't go because as you said i had a lear- i truly was in my learner's permit time and yeah. i didn't i don't think i had a license by this point but i convinced my friends scott and adina who were on a date who themselves wanted to go on a date and i was like well since you guys are going to be making out the entire movie, I'll just pick the movie. And I got to see Rushmore in the theater, nice. which was, again, another tremendously important pick. Yeah. Can I ask what store you worked at in the mall? 
Oh, I worked in so many, but the one that I primarily spent the most time at was like a center court kiosk, like one of those little yep. sort of carts, and it was irreverent t-shirts. So it was like equal parts, like Grateful Dead t-shirts or shirts that literally said, I'd rather be masturbating. <laughs> That's the same thing for me. Yeah, the, <laughs> it was very much the late night. It was like the peak of irony as humor. Oh, yeah. So you didn't have Big Johnson shirts, but you had something. Much... No, they were like, it was like a thinking man's Big Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And so you then worked at other places in the mall. Yeah, I worked everywhere from like that to a shop that sold bonsai trees to doing inventory at Claire's to doing inventory or stock boy stuff at Aldo to like, I worked at a food court place called Super Salad for years. (laughs) We would trade the food that we had with the guys who worked at Taco Bell. So I'm very familiar with the Taco Bell diet. Yeah, this is my life. That's great. I never worked in a mall, but I did work at an indie record store on a college campus. Amazing. So we would trade promos for food from the the pizza place or the bagel place. And like people would be like, keep an eye out for this. And I would call the labels because I did displays. And so I'd be like, hey, we need a POP for Bjork, which they never gave us for any of our albums. But one album, they sent a bunch of posters and stuff so I could do a display. And so I hooked up the food people and like yeah, the bar people. It's very, yeah, it's its own market and economy. Yeah, I've never seen a movie that captured that, you know, that culture part. There's totally. been stuff set in malls, but I was like, but they're missing this thing. I feel exactly the same way that yeah. there's like a gigantic piece missing from when they're trying to cover like the surface nostalgia yeah like there's like this whole like very intricate social ecosystem that is missing from anything that tries to capture what happens at malls yeah i met my wife my sarah marshall in urban outfitters oh classic yeah and i always thought a great scene in a mall movie would be you finished the standards by folding a stack of shirts and it's like 9.59 and then the person comes in and it's like slow motion watching them walk to the stack of shirts and take the bottom one and you're just like no I'm gonna be here forever I'm very familiar with that issue (laughs) yeah oh man malls I love it well if you're lost and you look you will find a six-year-old Alex Steed in 1999 freedom of the open road but will that road lead to American Beauty Eyes Wide Shut or Magnolia Geez, 1999, what are you upset about, Y2K? So was 16-year-old Alex Seed instead searching for levity by the way of music? Because 1999 sees the release of Beck's Midnight Vultures, Moby Play, Basement Jack's Remedy, and Mariah Carey's Rainbow. Was Alex snacking on the new KFC original chicken sandwich while watching Who Wants to Be a Millionaire or the cartoon <laughs> Dragon Tales? Perhaps 16-year-old Alex's favorite movie was Notting Hill, Fight Club, or Bicentennial Man. Probably not Bicentennial Man. <laughs> <laughs> Was Alex rocking baggy jeans, a striped sweater, and big sideburns with wraparound sunglasses, or driving to TLC's Scrubs and Santana's Smooth? What a wild year to be 16. Alex, what was your selection? So I certainly saw many of the movies that you said in the theater. (laughs) I definitely saw Notting Hill in the theater with my girlfriend at this time, whose name was Kate. Still is, I'm sure. And I saw... I I was like, some one person's like, oh, no, she's alive. I saw Election, which was fantastic. I saw American Beauty and I saw Fight Club. So I think if I'm going to pick any of them, Election was like the one that, no, 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 no. That would be, again, that's revisionism. (laughs) Election was grandly important and stuck with me, but I was certainly a Fight Club boy. Yeah. What do you think it was about Election? What felt meaningful in Mm -hmm. some way was like, I was just saying this on our show because we recorded an episode about Rushmore, which I'd seen the previous year. And then I saw Election. And I remember, obviously, it happened within a year of each other that they came out. But in my memory, 
it felt like a back-to-back acknowledgement by adults exactly how screwed up high school is. Mm -hmm. That was extremely important for me was it wasn't like American Pie or something like that where high school is like triumph, like whatever. It's like this nostalgic look back. These were high school is like elementally a screwed up place. I loved that about that and Rushmore. Yeah, that's an excellent point. I was miserable in high school. So any films that really sort of hit that, I was like, (laughs) yeah, this makes sense. Did you ever see the film Chocolate War? No, I don't know what this is. I highly recommend it. Okay. It's a film from the 80s. I did an episode on it with an administrator. It's kind of a sad, dire film. And the whole soundtrack is Yaz. Oh, wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my wife introduced me to it because she's a huge Yaz fan. I somehow missed it. And then I watched it. It's really, really good. And if you like high school movies where people aren't behaving right, (laughs) I highly recommend it. Perfect. That sounds great. It's right up my alley. It's really good. So what kind of teenager would you describe yourself as? Were you super social? Were you... I mean, you're wearing Jankos, so you're obviously cool. (laughs) So I had like two items of clothing I most distinctly remember are those Jenkos around age 15 probably and then I got into punk around that same you like sort of like deeply it not just like I listened to some bands but like I kind of like deeply got into punk as like a in a from a culturally like resonant way Mm -hmm. and that started to shape I think more of what I wore although I never was a subculture as uniform type of person and I say this which is funny as a person who was wearing Jenkos it was just what was happening I was much more ill-fitting jeans Mm -hmm. Chuck Taylors and whatever t-shirt I could find at like the 25 cents bargain shop yeah and I remember I the the other item of clothing I was trying to recall is if you got the killer instinct super nintendo cartridge and spent an extra ten dollars for like some bonus feature on it which I can't remember what the bonus feature was but it came with a t-shirt with one of the characters named Kilgore on it and my neighbor bought that and gave me the shirt because it fit me and I wore that shirt (laughs) All the time, forever, even though I had no particularly warm feelings about the game Killer Instinct. That's so funny. I've never heard of this game. It was like a Mortal Kombat style fighting game at the height of that style of fighting game. Mm. But it felt like the characters were made intentionally or not via claymation. They felt like actually tangible in a way that like digital games started to feel less tangible. That's so cool. And what area? Where did you grow up? I grew up in a small town in Maine called Cornish. Okay. The population, I believe at that time was like 1,250. And so there was that. And then the larger school district was maybe like 5,000 people total in the, the area. The school was like 450 people. Right. Yeah. You know, depending on how you look at it, either like quaint or alienating. Same. I had the same experience. <laughs> yeah. Small town. And I felt incredibly alienated, which is why I watched so many movies in my dad's video store because I was trying to... Oh, your dad at a video store. Yeah, that's what I grew up in. That's the that's why I'm the way I am. <laughs> and so I would just pull things from the shelves and try to learn what was happening out of sight of this town I felt trapped in. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah, and so that's why I didn't go to New York forever because I was watching all these movies in the 70s that were set in New York where it was terrifying. But That's amazing. I just told this story on the show Risk the other day about oh, yeah. exactly this, about like being a kid who felt alienated, isolated, not sure about how to engage the world, blah, blah, blah. In my town of 1,200 people, 12 or 1,300 people, every store was a variety store that 
had a video store as oh, a part yeah. of it. Mm -hmm. And then there was one variety store that was like the biggest variety store and had like the biggest video store. I mean, I feel like I watched at least 90% of the movies that were there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'd like watch like Diabolique and I was like, yeah, what business did I have watching any of the movies that I watched? It just made no sense. Yeah. Uh, like War of the Roses. I was like, I should watch this, you yeah. know, but it was great and hugely formative. Yeah, same, same. I mean, I thought when I started working in record stores that I was the way that I was because I was obsessed with like bands and who was in the band and what label they were on and finding the other bands that were on that label. But it wasn't until I was way older that I was like, oh, no, I did this as a child in my dad's video store. Actors, directors, film companies. I just never thought about it because like a lot of people, your childhood, you're just like, yeah, we all had the same childhood. And it wasn't until my friend gave me a book of VHS cover art where I was like, Oh, I grew up in a video store. Like, it was just yeah. like, oh. Yeah, the same. I remember a very distinct, like, I remember the interaction where my whole family was from, like, suburban Boston. My uncle was visiting. I remember telling him I was, like, six, maybe, five or six, like, with wide eyes. Yes, they're the Ghostbusters, but it's really, like, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, <laughs> Harold Ramis. And I would be like, Ivan Reitman made the film, and, like, these aren't real people. These are, like, actual puppets and, like, whatever. And I remember him just, like, looking at my mom and being like, Nancy, your kid is weird. <laughs> For as long as I can remember media, I've been seeing it from the dimension of watching and accepting it and mm. also wanting to understand how it was made. I also love yeah. that you mentioned pieces because there were scenes if you were at a concert, but most of us were putting together our outfits and our personas by picking up individual pieces from random places. There wasn't yeah. hot topics to be like, if you're a goth, buy this outfit. It was wow. like, you just got stuff and turned it into other stuff sometimes. It was just like, totally. you know, my friends were right in at the drop of raves and you'd go to raves and nobody was all wearing jenkos and stuff it was like you said ill-fitting jeans and right. you know there wasn't a dress code yet i mean and if you see someone fully adhered to a dress code they're wearing a version of what was happening three years ago yeah yeah you know because it's had a time to get adopted into like a fashion system like sort of like get mass produced etc etc and my co-host Sarah, the Sarah Marshall that I know, yeah. one of her primary complaints with like period movies is if you look at a street in 1977, it's not filled with like new cars from 1977. Right. It's filled with cars from the 40s through the 60s. That's you know right. what I mean? The period almost always feels like a little too twee because mm -hmm. it assumes a uniformity that did not yeah. ever really exist. Yeah, it's like when you watch the fetishized 80s nostalgia movies and you're yeah. like, oh, you don't have any clue what it was like. Like, Yeah, <laughs> totally. It, it was so like brown and so mismatched. It wasn't all pink and purple and neon. No, like, it was brown and orange. Yeah. No one gets it right if it's not like brown and orange. The, you know, the movie that recently I had, and I don't know what time it was supposed to take place. I assume it was the 80s. The most faithful 80s reconstruction I've seen yet, I think, if it was the 80s, was in Barbarian. Oh. There's like a quick flashback scene that takes place, again, presumably based on what time we're set now and what time we know about things, presumably in the 80s. And it's not pink and ice blue. Yeah. It's like everything's brown and orange and yellow and the color of simulated wood. Like, that's just what happened. Yeah. I mean, even when stuff tried to be like super neon, 
It was usually just primary colors. When Debbie Gibson came out with her own fragrance, Electric Youth, I wanted it so badly, but it had this electrical bolt inside of it that was pink and the lid was blue and like... I wanted it so much, but... um, The only movie I've seen that looks like how everybody wants to remember the 80s is Dead End Drive-In. Is yeah. that what it's called? The, first of all, that movie's tremendous. It's so extreme, good. Just so overlooked, but the way it looks mm-hmm. is the way that everyone seems to be projecting the 80s looked, and it's yeah. the only movie I've ever seen that actually looks like it. Yeah, right next door to my dad's video store, it was called Putton Video, so it was miniature golf in an arcade. And so when he wanted me to get out of his hair, he would give me a dollar and I could go next door and walk around. And it was like, exactly like your Sarah Marshall said, if you see an arcade in the 80s, it's full of these new arcade games. But this thing (laughs) was not that way. They had the Journey game. They had old stuff in there. And it's like those places where like mom and pop shops, they would be lucky to get one new machine in like three years. (laughs) It's a gigantic expense that they're paying for one quarter at a time. (laughs) That's so crazy. Oh man. We had a place in our town called La Verdiers and it was like a Walgreens, but like Walgreens eventually bought it over time like right aid bought it then walgreens bought it and they had a little game room in the back and like when they got double dragon it was like oh yeah it was unreal because it it upgraded the video game experience that they had on hand prior by 10 years <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're like we don't have to play root beer tapper anymore yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, God. well for 1998 i chose permanent midnight so I was oh, off. hell yeah. yeah. I just bought a collection of erotica written by Jerry Stahl. Oh, really? Yeah, I didn't know he did that. I didn't either until you just said it. Here we are. I was just talking about it right before this call. Oh my gosh. I'm yeah. going to have to look that up. That sounds fascinating. Totally. It was like in the erotica, I was like, Jerry Stahl? I didn't know he had the sexiness in him. How did you feel about Mr. Chompers when you first saw Permanent Midnight? <laughs> <laughs> well, I saw it in the 90s and yeah, it was disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> But right around then, I saw another movie called Johns. I don't know if you've seen that one. I don't know Johns, no. David Arquette and Lucas Haas, and they are Johns. They're male prostitutes. Amazing. It's a great film. There's one scene, though, where a man's paying them to throw grapefruits at his ass. And so that kind of trumped everything for me that year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the Understandably. Like we were talking online about the movie Alive, where there was somebody that was tweeting about the plane crash and the kids, and it's about more than the cannibalism. But I'm like, you can say two words for someone that lived through the 90s, and they'll know the movie you're talking about. And it's not it, mountains or soccer. It's like <laughs> I was like, I get this. I get people who go deep on anything. Like, it's not about the shorthand. But, yeah. you know, almost every movie from the 90s you can bring up, and I can reduce it to two words. And if I'm going <laughs> to talk about a live, it's going to be, uh, you know, plane, plane crash cannibals. It's yeah. going to be three words. But Right. I just said to my wife, what was the 90s movie where they eat ass? And she was like, oh, alive. And I was like, see, that's all you need. <laughs> If you're like looking for a Greg Araki movie, yeah, you're like... you think it would be Doom Generation or something, but no, it's, <laughs> it's a tasteful movie. About... I'm not enough. <laughs> they tastefully eat the ass yeah. in this movie yeah. it's because it's for survival. It's so good. I was wrong in my notes. Permanent Midnight is what I had for 1998, but I believe we just did 1999, and my pick for that <laughs> was Baby Geniuses. Oh wow, wow! <laughs> so I was off. I, I never saw that. <laughs> You didn't miss much, but there is a couple of those, I think. 
feeding. Everyone's got to do it, even vampires. But if you aren't a vampire, or a baby, or a baby vampire, then sometimes eating can become so repetitive and boring. Which is where Marshall's Hot Sauce comes in. Liven up any meal with those small batch sauces made from only the freshest ingredients. From the sweet, mild heat of smoked habanero barbecue, to the addictive serrano ginger lemongrass, or even my two personal favorites, habanero carrot curry and bird's eye basil. In fact, Marshall's Hot Sauce even has a new line of seasonings, including an incredible barbecue rub, a chicken marinade, and even a volcano sparkle that a vampire could eat. Ha <laughs> uh, The best part is that you can enter VHS Podcast at checkout for 20% off. That's right. Liven up those meals and wake up those undead taste buds at marshallshotsauce.com. That's marshalls, H-A-U-T-E, sauce.com. And enter VHS Podcast for 20% off. And now, back to the show. Well, now, the year is 2000, and the world has not ended. Did 17-year-old Alex emerge from his bathtub of well-stocked water bottles and turn up Breathe by Faith Hill? Or, just relieved that Alex this year would get to see Memento, Requiem for a Dream, and American Psycho? Jeez, 2000, you've been hanging out with 1999? (laughs) Or, perhaps Alex wasn't at the theater watching Coyote Ugly, Aaron Brockovich, or High Fidelity. Maybe Alex was saying bye-bye-bye to the 90s with NSYNC while chugging a newly debuted caramel frappuccino at Starbucks. Then perhaps maxing and relaxing on the couch to watch Will and Grace. Alex, what did you choose for the year 2000? I certainly saw Requiem for a Dream in the theater and then like insufferably listened to the Kronos Quartet for the rest of the year, like a, like a jerk. Uh, and not to say that that's jerk music or whatever, but it was a classic, oh, I'm going to make this my personality. Yes. I do remember, shockingly, next to Requiem for a Dream, I can't believe that there's any other movie I remember more than seeing in the theater. And it was Unbreakable. I saw like Unbreakable in the theater. And I think I loved it. What was that movie? Unbreakable was the M. Night Shyamalan oh, movie in which Mr. Bruce Glass, Willis discovers right? he's a superhero. <laughs> right. I. That's why I missed it. Okay. Fair. <laughs> but I got to know, why was this so important? I actually kind of love the idea, outside of the fact that M. Night Shyamalan kind of got reduced to being a person who just makes twist ending movies. Yeah. I've always really liked the idea of stripping very obvious genres of their most obvious elements Mm -hmm. and sort of producing it or like changing it or changing the perspective to it. And I really like the idea of it not being, I'm a superhero, but it being like an existential crisis, kind of all of that. And I understand obviously that stuff that happened masterfully in like the Watchmen comic, how like 20 years before this movie came out, but I really enjoyed it. And I thought that Samuel L. Jackson was really great in the movie. It was delightfully ominous in fun fun ways. I haven't seen it since, so I can't speak to how it held up. If I was watching a, you know, like a Terminator movie, my brain would spin out and be like, what happens when he gets sand in a joint? (laughs) Right. How does he handle that? And so like, I feel like Unbreakable was that version of a question multiplied by a superhero movie. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's something I really love is that you can see a movie at a certain time in your life and appreciate it for what it meant to you in that time. Like Evil Dead 2, I absolutely love Evil Dead 2. I haven't watched it in forever, but like at a specific time in my life, it was so important. I didn't need a TV show or any of the things really after it that other fans absolutely loved and adored. I just like the idea sometimes of having something frozen in a moment where you're like, it got me through a lot and it's great that it was there and it doesn't have to be something I look at now and go, let's apply today's (laughs) thinking to this film. (laughs) Like It just did the right thing at the right time. 
I love that. Going back to, you had mentioned a date and then you mentioned Kate. Was that the same person that you were in a relationship with a year later? Kate was like 98 to 2000. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So you probably saw a lot of movies together. Yeah, we did. I think that she was like a person who didn't necessarily care what was seen in the theater. Just like would go and like kind of see anything. Which, a lot of people. Actually, in retrospect, I'd love to know if that was true. Like, I'd love to know if I was just like, we're seeing Fight Club. And she's like, I don't want to. I'm like, we're seeing. I'm like, I don't think so. She seemed like an enthusiastic participant yeah. in that. But, you know, how much can I possibly even know my 16-year-old self? Right. You're like, we're going to go see Requiem for a Dream again. She's like, no. <laughs> no, by the time Requiem for a Dream came out, I was dating a woman named Larissa who loved it. She was like a super arty weirdo. Kate was a cheerleader, incredibly vivacious and bubbly person, whatever. Okay. Larissa was an art weirdo. And we certainly saw Requiem for a Dream together. <laughs> and maybe some Cronenberg movies. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And then like around this time, like Vanilla Sky came out. Uh -huh. That was very funny. Totally. Oh, fantastic. Well, I chose Flintstones Vivo Rock Vegas. So I, I missed <laughs> that one too. There's a place in Burbank that is not a costume shop, but it's like a vintage shop mm. where all the clothes come from studios. Like when they're done with their extras stuff, they just send it to the shop or whatever. And they have like a lot of props from the Flintstones movies, <laughs> which I really appreciate. That's wonderful. Can you rent them or you just go see No, them? they're just like on the wall for nice. you to enjoy Okay, perfect. Why did that stand out to you? It didn't. When I go through, I just pick things that clearly the guests will not have chosen. That's um, I love it. I love it. That's great. <laughs> like, I don't think a 13-year-old should watch the pillow book, just for the record. That's probably a wise disclaimer. Yeah. Well, anyway. Okay, 18. The year you can vote for best cigarette. The year is 2001, and Alex Steed is technically an adult, but would an 18-year-old Alex Steed be smoking cigs while blasting the Gorillaz self-titled album, Daft Punk Discovery, or System of a Down Toxicity? All three. <laughs> All three, for sure. And smoking here and there. Nice. <laughs> or would he be one of the brave to watch Brendan Fraser in Monkey Bone? Theaters were inundated with classics like A Knight's Tale, How High, and Corky Romano. But perhaps 2001 found an angsty Alex Steed with the news of Norway lifting its ban on the sale of whale meat. I don't know. It was a touchstone of the year, I guess. <laughs> Shame on you, Norway. The small screen was dominated by friends, but was Alex at home wondering what's up with Monica? Or was Alex out with friends at karaoke singing Lady Marmalade? Or is this it by the strokes? <laughs> Oh my god. How distressed was Alex's denim in this time? In this year, he discovered a love for Captain Corelli's mandolin. Only Alex can tell us. So Alex Steed, what did you choose for 2001? So just some movies I am going to note that I saw. Yeah. I saw Traffic, Legally Blonde. I think that I might have seen Memento, but I can't remember entirely. I know I saw <laughs> Aaron so, Brockovich. It's funny you oh. can't remember Memento. Isn't that perfect? I saw that. And then I saw like, a number of other indie like documentaries at the time. But the one that if I'm being, again, just absolutely honest yes. about the movie that I was like the most stoked about was Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. Did this come out in 2000? I think it did. 2001. Oh, shoot. Shoot. So let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back to 2000. <laughs> I had all the right things uh, prior. Okay, so for 2000, Almost Famous. Oh, okay. Yeah, in, in 2000, I saw Almost Famous, stood out. I feel like that movie is kind of perfect for kids who, like me at that time, did not, no one was in charge. Yeah. <laughs> and so it was like just cool seeing this kid go and do a bunch of stuff that was extraordinarily age inappropriate for him. <laughs> and I had that same life. That was my same life. 
I love loss of innocence movies, like the point where the world's full of wonder and then you realize, oh, death is real and stuff like that. It's just like, that's a big deal to me. And I also love these times where you're off on your own. Like when I had my first apartment at 17 and, you know, a job and nobody's telling me what to do and I'm living just like a wild person. Yeah. It was magical. And the soundtrack for my time during that was Underworld and stuff like that. So it's just oh. people go, oh, you're nostalgic for the specific time. I'm like, it never left me. I have no same. <laughs> behind the laptop. It's like 3000 CDs that I've carried around since I bought them. <laughs> like, it's just I love it. Yeah, actually, have you seen the train spotting sequel? Yeah, I saw it for the first time yesterday or the day before. And I'm so glad that for whatever reason, I started to fall into a train spotting hole because I don't think I would have seen the sequel otherwise. Sure. My wife hasn't seen train spotting. So I was like, I'll wait till she's able to see it. So I'll watch the sequel and to fill in the blanks. First of all, I couldn't get over how much I loved it. I really loved it. I haven't seen a sequel that takes place like an inappropriate amount of time later that honors the original characters as much as like Color of Money does to the Mm. original character. What a great way to put these people in a new context. And the only reason I bring that up specifically based on what you were just saying is within the movie, the characters have a conversation about whether they're interested in nostalgia or interested in who they actually were. Yeah, yeah. Which is not like cute meta. Like you can actually tell Danny Boy was like thinking about this. I was like, how do I actually voice this? It's not like a cute winking. Is this nostalgia? It's like an actual conversation. And I've been thinking a lot about that lately Mm -hmm. because I've always been from teens on in a weird way, extremely cautious about nostalgia traps. Mm -hmm. Like I've always been like, this is bad. This is just trying to get you to buy shit. This isn't like whatever. But I have been revisiting music that I was aware of and listened to in my youth, but wasn't my primary stuff Mm. to listen Mm -hmm. to. And it's been really interesting finding a weird power in that or like finding maybe versions of myself that was there at that time that I wasn't ready to access or Mm. able to access or have the skill set to recognize and so for me like a big part of like getting back into like underworld or like crystal method or stuff like that is like knowing is getting to know that kid that was like interested in Mm. that stuff but didn't quite know what to do with it yet yeah oh I I absolutely love that I was just talking to someone who was 28 and mentioned that he was listening to Bauhaus. And I oh, was like, oh, that's fantastic. Because from there, you can go to like Tones on Tail or all these other things. And then he mentioned something else. And I don't know if it was The The or something around that or the band X. It was something. And it reminded me of these compilations called Volume. I don't know if you ever saw the volume. Yeah, where yeah, yeah I'm a... familiar. I've talked about this with Nico Stratus oh, before. Yeah. yeah, and it's like a booklet. And it had like, yeah. you know, all these different bands. And you could read interviews and all this stuff. And I discovered so many things because of those compilations. And so whenever people talk about exactly like what you're talking about, I'm like, look up compilations. Just say yes. Just say yo. The volumes one there's one called wasted that has like orbital and underworld and all these things and it's like they do deep cuts and remixes and things that you would have to get off of 12 inches back then but it's all accessible on the internet now and yeah oh it's so wonderful to come across those things and be like you know what i do like meat beat manifesto or whatever it is that's on there yeah i mean that's how the and again this is something i've talked about with my friend nico stratus who's been on our show before who's a fantastic writer from toronto and we talked a lot about particularly like nico was from the yukon and i'm from rural maine and your best bet to get new music was soundtracks because Uh it was like if you're gonna get 
X soundtrack because it has nine inch nails on it, you're going to learn chemistry or whatever, like right. stuff that like <laughs> would not be obvious or evident or like you might have missed age wise or whatever. And then, you know, once you started to know about like record stores, mm -hmm. or if you did know about record stores, or you could get to a even like a friggin' Borders that yeah. had the magazines with like the shrink wrap. And then there was like a, CMJ. a, a sampler. Yeah. Yeah, those were like gigantic. Same. And then I also was alive for the era. I knew kids that got arrested in school for making and selling mixtapes. And so they were another saving grace because they were, you know, like literally like freaking legally martyred for bringing you new music because they were pirating stuff, but they weren't because they weren't bringing you music you'd ever heard of. Right. You would go like, I like this. And they'd laugh at how elementary your taste was. And then they would be your gateway to 10 other things that could help expand your brain. So I love that. Yeah, I was the mixtape kid. I got super into it. I would buy bricks of 90-minute cassettes and stuff, and I would make everyone mixtapes because I was out digging up music all the time. So when somebody was like, yeah, I like whatever the the mainstream one would be like the prodigy when they first came out or something i'd be like oh do you know sheep on drugs and they're like what yeah. are you talking about and i'm like okay and then i would make them these crazy tapes and it went on for so long that i was doing a farmer's market with my wife's business and this guy walked up and he was staring at me really weird and i was like oh no and he's like i think you made me a mix cd once in college <laughs> and i was like oh yeah and he's like like, I don't remember this person at all. And he's like, yeah, it was like the weirdest music I've ever heard. And I was like, yeah, that was me. That was me. Oh my God, it's so good. <laughs> but it's I did so it so good. much, I didn't even know who this guy was. Oh, man. I had always had like older friends, especially when I was like significant, before I had a license and was significantly younger. And, you know, they had the grand four or five of the 500 sleeve CD booklets. Yeah. And I would just go in and just like make tapes from their awesome. libraries. And it was my favorite and it was so kind of like across the board and strange mm -hmm. uh, it was i am nervous obviously about getting too nostalgic about one thing or another but i did really enjoy in a way that i carry through and like everything else i do mm -hmm. the like actual physical hunt as much as the listening i think was as important and i'm so grateful for how connected we are to music and stuff that exists now online and like what you can find and all that stuff but i enjoy looking at microfiche in the library still <laughs> yeah i mean that's one of the things i enjoy about having physical media or the wall of cds or upstairs we have crates and crates of records is our nine-year-old daughter can touch these things and explore them because her world is interacting online and algorithms and all this stuff that's very different but it's good to have all the different experiences, I think, because the future is going right. to be whatever it is for her. But she can also pick something up and hold it in her hand and look at it and discover the weird art or whatever it is. So I, th I totally. like the variety. And like you said, I see good in all of it. You can't help but shake the way that things were when you were at very specific times. Oh, in definitely. Life. Yeah. Just like the process is meaningful. And you'll find yourself applying that process to a lot of things, even if you're not conscious of it. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, for 2001, I chose Spy Kids, so I was wrong again. <laughs> yeah, it was Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back. I remember seeing it. I remember exactly where I sat in the theater for some reason. I remember who I was with. I was with everyone who I worked with at Super Salad in the mall. Yes. That was a huge one, and I had graduated from high school by that time. That's awesome. Weirdly, I had a, I mean, not a tight, but like for a kid from Maine, I had the tightest relationship with Kevin Smith, the actual person, than any kid from Maine did. <laughs> Kevin Smith's production house had its own website starting in like 96 or 97. Wow. It had a message board 
community and feature that I was like very much a part of starting at like 12. And I wrote a paper on, I think, Clerks and like called his office to talk with him about the movies, like while he was also writing Chasing Amy at that time, which was really fascinating. Like you spoke to him? Yeah. And he also donated... I did a fundraiser for some natural disaster or whatever my high school and was like, will you match the money? And he matched the money that I raised at the school. So like, I think Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back, Dogma had come out before that. So I think Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back is like kind of the last movie of his that I was like super into, like while it was happening in real time. And then after when Clerks 2 came out, I was like, I'm not interested. But largely because he was like a force in my life as a kid, like not by his choice. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The force of my life. That's so fascinating. I've never heard about that. You know, I'm a big softie. Yeah, he just gave a kid $500 because yeah. he raised money at the school. It was amazing. I'm a big softie for that kind of stuff. And I love to hear it, whether it's a director that I was super into or not. It's just like any story about someone doing something good. I'm like, give that to me. I love that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, super. I can't say enough. He and that team were before anyone knew there'd be any payoff in being that involved in internet communities at a maker to consumer level. I remember there would be days that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were posting on the boards like in real time with people. You know, this is in the 90s. Yeah, This was like a long time ago, but they all made themselves very accessible. And, and the things that I know, at least in my personal experience, that he did to share that early were pretty great. That's amazing. Wow. We are finished. That's Screen Teens. Alex Steed, when do you drop new episodes of Your Good? They come out on Wednesdays. Okay. So great. our next episode, if you're interested in this sort of thing, is Working Girl. And then our episode after will be Rushmore. And then our episode after will be Boogie Nights. So these are the kinds <laughs> of movies that we cover. Oh, that's great. I love it. Yeah. I just heard the episode. Oh, I forgot his name, but he hosts the show you just were on. Oh, Kevin Allison. Yes. We did Blue Velvet. Yeah, I love that movie. And then I love Kevin Allison. It was such a treat. Yeah. Oh, my God. So Kevin Allison was in the sketch. You know all this, but I'll say it for people who yeah, don't please. know. So Kevin Allison was one of the, the founding members of the sketch comedy group, The State, mm -hmm. which was just profoundly important to me yes. as a kid in real time. It was like, all I wanted to do was be seen by adults who got me. They were some of the first, just barely adults on screen, but I was like, <laughs> oh, these people got me. And so not only to like connect with a person who was meaningful in that way, but he's a dynamic storyteller, but he's just incredibly generous and sweet in a way that I'm yeah. happy to report one of my heroes is that way. Yeah, same. It was such a treat to listen to you three. And uh, it's such a wonderful episode. So, I, I mean, I highly recommend people listen to You Are Good if you haven't already. It's something I listen to weekly. But that episode, you know, I think for those of us that encountered the state back in the day when it was brand new, it felt like you were seen. You know, like I was like, oh, I am this weird guy sitting in a bucket oh. or whatever Thomas Lennon was doing. And I've followed all of those people's careers since oh, then. I lived in Seattle for one year. And I went to walk by a theater and Wet Hot American Summer was playing. And it was oh, like sh showing like two showings. I didn't even know it was a thing. I saw it by myself in the theater and it just blew me away. Like I just was, I was like, was this made for me? It was like seeing a play done just for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, was yeah. Just, uh, it's unbelievable. I don't think at the time I ever connected that I was like, this is actually for few other people. Like, yeah. I don't think I was just like, oh, I'm glad to know this is there. Like, this is like connecting with me. But little did I know at the time, or did I make the connection at the time that it was reassuring me I was okay. Mm -hmm. Or 
that the things I liked were valuable. Yeah, it's fascinating. I love that. Well, this isn't a Kids in the Hall podcast, but it might as well be for a couple minutes. But Alex D, thank you so much for your time and for your preparation for Screen Teens. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was super fun. I really like everything about the show. So thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you. Until next time, I'm Dirk Marshall, and this is VHS Presents Screen Teens.